Going to the chapel and we're going to get married. Wait, rewind. Does your marriage need a miracle? Jesus chose a wedding in Cana of Galilee as the site to perform his first miracle. Somebody failed to order enough wine and they ran out. So big was the social blunder that the groom's parents could be sued financially. But somebody was wise enough to invite Jesus to that wedding. And he made all the difference in the world. He saved the wedding day by turning water into wine. So the next time you think about going to the wedding chapel, or the next time you face a crisis in your own marriage, don't forget to invite Jesus. I'm Ron Jones. Something good starts right now. I'm Brian Davis, and you're listening to Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones. Well, Ron calls it the wedding miracle, the first recorded miracle of Jesus. And according to the Apostle John, the first miracle Jesus ever performed. Today, Ron breaks down the significance of this miracle, as well as some of the controversy surrounding it. Stay right here or look for us online at somethinggoodradio.org where you can listen to any of Ron's messages on demand on your schedule. That's somethinggoodradio.org. Subscribe to the program at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now from John chapter two, here's Ron with today's Something Good Radio message, The Wedding Miracle. Of all the duties a pastor performs, none is more enjoyable than a wedding. They are joyful, joyful occasions, at least most of them are. Everybody there is in a good mood. Everybody is happy about the bride and the groom and for the bride and the groom, and everybody's ready for a party afterwards. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that in a pastor's life. And maybe that's why Jesus chose a wedding celebration as the place to perform his first miracle. Maybe that's the reason. Or maybe he was up to something else when he turned the water into wine. The wedding miracle, as I like to call it, recorded here in John chapter 2, is the first of eight sign miracles that John records in his gospel. You may remember that there are 37 miracles in all recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John lifts out eight of them, and he refers to them as simians or signs, signs that point to the person and nature and purpose of Jesus Christ. And John refers to this wedding miracle in John chapter 2 as the first of his signs. Is it the first? Well, according to Islam, no, it's not. Did you know that in the Quran there are stories of Jesus as an infant and even as a young boy growing up in the streets of Nazareth? performing miracles. Jesus taking a, 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 a bunch of clay, for instance, and shaping it into a bird, and miraculously those, those birds fly away. Or even raising people from the dead, even as, an, as a young boy in Nazareth. Does the Quran know something and reveal something about Jesus that the Bible doesn't? That's a question we have to ask and answer because John calls this the first of the miracles. And where did the Koran get these stories? Well, scholars um, are pretty 
convinced that the source for the Quran uh, was another document known as the Infancy Gospel of Thomas that arose in the second or third century. It was popular in the North African Coptic Christian communities, which means that also the person who drafted this part of the Quran would have been familiar with the infancy gospel of Thomas. The exact stories you find in the Quran are found in the infancy gospel of Thomas. You say, well, what's the infancy gospel of Thomas? Well, it was one of the non-canonical books. By that, I mean it never made it into the canon of Scripture. It didn't even make it into the Apocrypha, which the Catholic Bible includes. It was one of these spurious writings that arose up during the second and third century. To compare the infancy gospel of Thomas to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, if I could put it in today's analogy, is a little bit like comparing the National Enquirer to the New York Times or the Washington Post. I mean, the difference between tabloid or fake news in our culture and legitimate journalism well, I know that's blending a little bit today, but in real terms, we know the difference between the two. We know when the National Enquirer says that, uh, you know, President George W. Bush is an alien from Pluto. That's not legitimate news. And back in the second and third century, writings like the infancy gospel of Thomas was considered the tabloid news of its time. It didn't rise to the authenticity and to the trustworthiness of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And for that reason, and because we believe this Bible is authoritative and trustworthy for all the scholarly reasons that we can come up with, for all the arguments we can come up with inside the Scriptures and external to the Scriptures, for that reason, any silly or superstitious story about the infant Jesus performing miracles, even the boy Jesus performing miracles, we reject. Now, it's true that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are relatively silent on the boyhood of Jesus and what He did during those days in Nazareth, but that doesn't mean that we, we go looking other places to fill in the gaps, as some people have done. It, it just means that, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, th those things weren't necessary. We're given little glimpses into His boyhood. But John says in the Gospel of John, the trustworthy, authoritative pages of Scripture, this is the first of his signs, and the first means first. It says in verse 1 that on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. We don't know how Mary ended up on the guest list. We don't know why she was invited. We really don't know why Jesus and his disciples were invited to this social gathering called a wedding, but they were there. It says, the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. Here's where the intrigue comes in, in verse 3. They said, the wine ran out. Now, 2,000 years ago, in a Jewish wedding, this was, was more than just a huge social embarrassment. It was that. It was a major embarrassment but it also might have levied financial fines against the groom and his family. Uh, there are some writings uh, that talk about the Jewish customs of the day that, that help us understand that in a Jewish wedding 2,000 years ago, the preparations and the cost of a wedding fell to the groom and to his family. By the way, that's why when my daughter uh, gets married one day, we're converting to Judaism that day, <laughs> just so you know. We'll 
convert right back afterwards, but kind of like that idea, you know. Then when my son gets married, you know, it goes the other direction. But it, it, was, it was the groom's responsibility to pay for the event. And, and Jewish weddings back then, even today, they're, they're much more than just a wedding day. They, they last, the celebration lasted for an entire week. And so there were many plans and many preparations that had to go into this wonderful and joy-filled celebration. But somebody miscalculated the amount of wine they needed, and they ran out. And this was a huge social embarrassment that could even lead to financial fines against the groom's family. And we don't know how Mary, the mother of Jesus, got to the event. We don't know her relationship to the bride and groom, but she seems to have a role to play here, kind of like a wedding coordinator, because she shoulders the responsibility here, and she goes to Jesus and says, they ran out of wine. Now, the first question that comes to my mind is, why didn't she say this to her husband, Joseph? Where's Joseph in all of this? Well, many scholars believe that because Joseph is never mentioned after the Christmas story, that he probably died. And so Mary goes to another, you know, one of her sons and to Jesus and says to him, they have no wine. I mean, feel the panic in Mary and, and just the sense of what are we going to do? We, we have to rescue the situation here. And Jesus' response is really quite interesting. Let me quote it to you directly. He says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, to us in the 21st century and in our Western culture, this sounds rather terse, kind of rude, uh, the kind of statement that if, I'll be honest with you, if either of my two kids said to their mother, woman, what are we having for dinner tonight? We would probably be planning their, their funeral the next day, okay? Just, just so you know. That's how it sounds to our Western ears. But actually, in a Jewish culture 2,000 years ago, this was a, a polite and appropriate way to address your mother. It might be like saying, mother, only woman. What does this have to do with me? And scholars tell us that this is actually a Jewish idiom that Jesus is using. It literally says, what to me to you? And it's a Jewish idiom that infers separation between two parties. In other words, Jesus is saying, Mother, this has nothing to do with me. And by the way, I'm no longer under your authority. Yes, you are my earthly parent, but you don't tell me what to do. You don't set the agenda in my life. Now, He's saying it in a very respectful way, and it's sort of like maybe a conversation that a father has with his, let's say, his college son who comes home from the summer, and they're having a conversation in the kitchen, and the dad says something, and the son just comes and puts his hand on dad's shoulder and says, Dad, I'm 20 years old now, okay? Not that a conversation like that ever happened in the Jones family recently, even though my college son just came home, and well, you get the idea here. There's that time in a child's life where, in a respectful way, you, you create that separation, okay? But there's more than that going on because Jesus not only says, woman, what to you to me? And then he says, my hour has not come. This is the first indication that there are messianic overtones in this miracle, 
And the question we have to ask and perhaps try to answer is, how much did Mary know? You know, at Christmas time we sing, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you, did you really know this baby that you held in your arms? And now this young man who is beginning his ministry, Mary, do you know he's a, do you know enough to try to prod him to perform a miracle here? Maybe to say to everybody in doing so, Messiah has arrived, and you know, all the messianic implications that might go with this. Did Mary know all of that? Is that what she was trying to do? Or is she just trying to figure out how to make a really bad situation right again? Well, the answer is we really don't know, and it really doesn't matter. Jesus knew, though, and he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus was not going to get forced into anything before the Father's timeline. And John is the gospel writer that, that pays particular attention to the times that Jesus referred to the hour, uh, the hour that it was time to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. When all the messianic prophecies, when all the predictions from the Old Testament aligned to this time, Jesus wasn't going to be forced into accelerating the Father's timetable. Seven times in John's Gospel, there's a reference to the hour. Still ahead, the second half of today's message with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Listen to Ron's messages on demand at somethinggoodradio.org. That's somethinggoodradio.org. And when you stop by, be sure to check out Starting Point, A Disciple's First Steps, a free online discipleship coaching experience created by Dr. Ron Jones. Look for Something Good courses when you visit our new streaming platform at somethinggoodradio.org. That's Starting Point, A Disciple's First Steps, where you'll discover what it means to be a disciple and learn how to train others to be genuine followers of Christ. When Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding in the village of Cana, it was not only a foreshadowing of things to come, but the fulfillment of messianic prophecies foretold long ago. Here's Ron with the rest of today's message, The Wedding Miracle. In fact, if you fast forward from John chapter 2 to John chapter 7, uh, Jesus and the disciples and Jesus' immediate family and his siblings are all going up to Jerusalem for the annual festivals. And his brothers, his earthly brothers, pull him aside and say, hey, Jesus, a guy like you, young upstarting rabbi, this is the time to present yourself to everybody. They're talking like marketing agents from Madison Avenue. And Jesus says, yeah, it's always time for you. The opportune time is here. The oppor he says, but it's not my time. It's not the Father's time. Jesus always had this sense of a messianic timetable, and he always knew and was sensitive to his Father's timing. By the way, God is, is, is never, never late. He's never early. He's always on time in your life and in my life, in every prophecy he makes, every prediction he makes, and Jesus was, was sensitive to that. So he says to his mother, respectfully, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Did Mary get it? Well, again, we really don't know. We really don't know. But from this point forward, Mary disappears from the story. She's not mentioned any further. 
And it gives us an indication that Jesus had something more going on here than just attending a social gathering. Why did he choose a wedding and the, the turning of water into wine as the, the location and the actual action of his first miracle? Why did he do all of that? Well, before we get to some practical applications that we're going to unpack and take home with us today, I want to I develop and unpack the uh, symbolic significance of this miracle because there's a lot going on here that, you know, doesn't always meet the eye. One has to do with the messianic fulfillment and foreshadowing that is, is wrapped up in a wedding ceremony and the turning of water into wine. Many, many Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah were written with uh, wedding, romantic, uh, wine kind of language. Let me give you a couple of examples. Amos chapter 9 and verses 13 and 14. This is a messianic prophecy that says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. The prophet Isaiah also weighs in by saying in a messianic and prophetic kind of way, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. In chapter 55 of Isaiah and verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Uh, the God of Israel also uses wedding imagery and language to describe his romantic relationship with his chosen people. And he refers to them in the book of Jeremiah as Israel my bride. Uh, whenever Israel strayed from the pure and holy relationship she was to have with Jehovah in the Old Testament, Again, there's wedding and romantic language used to describe her waywardness. Uh, she's referred to as a spiritual adulteress, and we could go on and on and on. You fast forward to uh, the end of uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 2, and John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Jesus even said in Matthew 22 and verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. I mean, just over and over and over again. Even John the Baptist, when he baptized Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, referred to Jesus as a messianic bridegroom. And so it's no casual incident that Jesus shows up at a wedding and turns water into wine. The messianic fulfillment, the messianic foreshadowing, yet you have to get that in the miracle here. He's basically saying, Messiah has arrived, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wasn't getting ahead of his father's timetable in doing so, but he was very, being very, very intentional about that. Thanks so much for being here for today's Something Good radio message, The Wedding Miracle. To hear any of Ron's messages on demand on your schedule, 
please visit somethinggoodradio.org. While you're there, check out the Something Good Digital Library with more than 500 hours of Bible teaching from Dr. Ron Jones to help you in your journey with Jesus. That's somethinggoodradio.org. Some of life's greatest adventures take place on a road trip. Nothing is more enjoyable than traveling the open highway with the windows rolled down and the music turned up. Each town, each exit, an experience all its own. Hello friend, I'm Ron Jones of Something Good Radio, and today I'm inviting you to take a road trip with me. You see, I'm convinced that reading the Bible is the greatest literary adventure you can ever take. But with 66 books, two testaments, and more than 600,000 words, it can be a daunting journey to attempt. That's why I wrote my two-volume book, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible, where I give you a bird's-eye view of God's Word so you can clearly see how it all fits together. All 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So pack your bags and join me on the ultimate road trip through the Bible. You'll be glad you did. Here's Brian with details. The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible, Volume 1 and 2, can be yours today by request for your gift of $50 or more to support the ministry of something good. When you order the print versions, you'll also get instant access to the Route 66 Digital Library, a $275 value. The online library includes electronic versions of the book, plus video sermons, audio messages, and downloadable sermon notes on all 66 books of the Bible. Visit somethinggoodradio.org to request the two-volume set and to gain immediate access to the Route 66 Digital Library. That's somethinggoodradio.org. Pastor Ron, not only did you break this project up into two volumes, but you created what you call eight different road trips five in the Old Testament and three in the New. Help our listeners understand the motivation behind that literary structure. You know, Brian, categorizing the various books of the Bible into eight separate groups is nothing new. Uh, they include the books of the law, the Old Testament historical books, uh, the wisdom books, the major prophets, the minor prophets. Then we're into the Gospels and the early church, the Pauline epistles, and we finish up with the general epistles in Revelation. But when I first decided to compare the reading of God's Word to a travel adventure, well, it took me almost no time to come up with the phrase road trip to identify these eight sections of Scripture. Uh, what I believe the reader will begin to see a little more clearly is that the books of the law, for example, point to the person and work of Jesus Christ as much as the Gospels do. Now, that's because the Bible is one story with one main character. His name is Jesus, and he is the Christ. Uh, my hope is that by experiencing the 66 books of the Bible as eight separate road trips, uh, this overarching theme will be easier to recognize and understand. Such a great idea, Pastor Ron. We're so glad you decided to share this important book with us. Again, that's The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Both volumes are yours as our thank you when you give a gift of $50 or more to support the ministry of Something Good. Give online at somethinggoodradio.org or over the phone by calling our offices 757-276-1099. Or you can mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia, Two, three, four, five, six. Are you a joyful Christian? 
You know, if we had time, we, we could establish the fact that joy is a gift from God, that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. The joy is a choice. James chapter 1 tells us, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. So I don't care what you're going through today. Choose joy. That joy is also, according to C.S. Lewis, the serious business of heaven. Did you know that? I love that phrase. Uh, Lewis wrote an autobiography about his personal conversion from atheism to theism and to faith in Jesus Christ. And he said he was surprised by joy because joy is the serious business of heaven. No more serious than when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. That's next time in part two of Dr. Ron Jones' message, The Wedding Miracle. Join us then for Something Good. And now, for Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis saying so long and thanks for listening.